2023, and welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and in this episode, we proudly feature an interview with the great Don Randy, legendary keysman for the always stunning Wrecking Crew, along with original co-host Joe Kennedy. And if you're tuning in for the first time, I'm over a year into the creation of the show, which has now grown to three shows per week, and there's a real audience building. Six-figure downloads in 70 countries, consistently ranked in the top 30 music commentary podcasts. And so now I'm in freefall mode, on a serious mission. I've quit my job as a hearing instrument specialist, and if you're listening to this episode close to its premiere date, then my wife, myself, and our four-year-old are in the midst of driving across the frozen tundra that is currently America to the East Coast, so we can live frugally and manageably. And all of that, just to ensure that Discography is the standard bearer for all that's awesome about music. So don't go anywhere when this episode's done. Subscribe. Coming up, we have King of Banjo Ambient, Andrew Tuttle rating the monks, a soul-bearing interview with Foxygen's Jonathan Rado, episode one of the John Landis tapes, Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes rating his own early work, and on and on and on way, way into the future. And all of this while we're plowing 3,000 miles through the snow, just so you can rock on uninterrupted in the style to which you become accustomed. Hey guys, throw me a bone here. I need your help. Check out all the back episodes and share the ones you dig with your friends. Go ahead and tag me too. Also, join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, in case you don't mess with the Zuck. Also, please rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're listening to the show on good old Amazon Music or Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and anywhere else for that matter. It'll help a lot. You can find the link to our legendary playlist in the show notes and also on our website at discography.com. And if you're like me and enough's just never enough, then visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the ultimate music deep dive. I post three shows a week. The main show on Sunday, then Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major on Tuesdays, soon to become a television show in 2023, and a Thursday wildcard episode, which is either an interview with that week's guest, or one of our other offshoot shows like Rock Cousteau, Queasy Listening, and Battle Royale. So hey, try it for a month, you've got nothing to lose. Okay, back to business. First things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears, even the bad stuff. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all the real reason we do this the Tootsie Pop Reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. And away we go then, with Don Randy and original co-host Joe Kennedy, as we tickle the ivories of the Imaginarium in our quest for the ultimate objective musical truth. Hey, so we're here in the studio with... Man, I got to tell you, every time I'm in the room with you, it feels like everything's going to be all right. <laughs> Ladies thank and gentlemen, you. Don Randy, the one and only. Uh, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast, Don. Thank, again, I want to thank you for being here, too. This is a real treat for us to get to chat with you. And yeah. we get we actually chat with you every now and then outside of this podcast. Yes, yeah. so. I enjoy it because always it's pleasure. always intelligent questions. What can I tell you? <laughs> right. Well, let's, let's kick things off. I, I, I need to know, first off. Uh, if you're if you were doing as many as 26 recording dates a week in the 60s, as you talk about in your sure. autobiography, how the hell do you remember everything you've played on? Well, I I remembered most of everything that I played on. There was you have to remember many times we would do a session and I didn't even put titles on, so you have to go trace it back, then find out that that's that's was the title of that song right so i mean it, it seems like just in terms of cataloging this stuff you'd have to hire somebody to follow you around and take notes for you to even know well i have a pretty accurate catalog of from 1963 to 
1970. And after that, we're fighting with the union right now because this, they don't want us to go into the archives because if there's a freedom of rights or something mm -hmm. because everybody's social security numbers are on. But yeah. who can, uh, we're not going for social security numbers. We yeah. want to go for the accuracy to be able to collect foreign royalties and stuff like yeah, that. Sure. Did you keep your own personal logs of the sessions? How do you know everything through 70? Uh, there was a guy by the name of Russ Wapinski who was allowed into the union. He really pulled it together for mm -hmm. all of us yeah. and made us all a lot of money for residuals. Yeah, I mean, well, and just for fans like us, um, people who are interested in history, we always want to know who played on what dates. I'm kind of obsessed about that kind of stuff. Well, plus, if, plus, if, if you, you tell if me you, what data was, I'll tell you who played yeah. on it. But if you, <laughs> if you sit down and look at your discography, it, as you go on, your jaw just drops further and further. So well, uh, let's do a speed round. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so here is a list of uh, of songs you've played on. Tell me the f uh, and albums. Okay. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I mention each of these without thinking about it at all. Okay. Zippity Duda. <laughs> uh, Phil Spector, Gold Star. Okay. Anything come to mind with regard yeah, to that? I, re I remember. Uh, I think the Sherman Brothers. Uh, who wrote uh, you know many many of the Disney things? Yeah, I think they were the, they were there, and I got to meet them. I just saw a documentary about them recently. Yeah. Okay, we're getting outside the speed. Okay, thing. okay. <laughs> Emmett Rhodes, the American Dream. Emmett Rhodes, the avatar of self-recorded bedroom pop. I do remember absolutely nothing about that. Okay, um, okay. God only knows. Ah, uh, one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. Good uh, vibrations. Another one of my favorites. How many dates do you think you did for just Good Vibrations? <laughs> dates how many different sessions how many I, times I, you I, walk in the door and they're like okay it's good vibrations at, at today. least 20 <laughs> yeah, yeah at least 20 because it took almost three months as you're doing this are you <laughs> thinking this is the sprawling narcissistic uh dreams of a madman or did you feel like brian had his shit together knew exactly what he wanted but just was that's exploring? exactly what you just said okay many times when you would work with brian he had the vocalese in his head and he had to work it out and he didn't give a shit how long it took mm -hmm. because he was going to do it. One of the stories was on Good Vibrations when we had been working nine hours. And I, we were all falling asleep on this one section of Good Vibrations. And all I was doing was holding my foot on the a low uh, G or B flat of the Hammond B3 organ. Yeah. Oh, that's and all. Yeah. Just yeah. a little note, nap. You know. You? And I was falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. I did fall asleep. I laid down with my head on the pedal. <laughs> yeah. Did you get a sense when you were doing it, like how the edit was going to work and everything at the end? Or? Absolutely not. Not. So when you heard the final edit, did it but, blow but, your mind? What interested me was when I saw, I think about, what was it? God knows, someplace in the middle of that, a Thurman player came in. Right. Uh -huh. And I said, uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> this is going to so, go through the roof. So, hold on. So, so you're working with, I want to deviate from the speed round thing for a second. You're working with Spectre. Spectre is knocking out these songs right. live, and then they're done basically in, in that day. And then you have Brian Wilson, who's taking months for yes. one song. Was there any sense of, has this guy lost the plot? Or did you really feel like... It, it just two, two geniuses at work. One do, right. does it this way, one does it another way. Right. Mind you, Phil took a long time to do one song. Many days, it was all day long. Right. The, the only thing we did that, that I can remember that Phil did in a hurry, and it wasn't that much enough, was the Christmas album which turned out to be one of the greatest Christmas not, albums. Not one of, of the greatest. It is, it is not, the it is. greatest Christmas album of all time. <laughs> and what an annuity. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And right. what a very clever thing by the gentleman at Sony who, who made the deal with Phil Spector to grab that as part of the package. Yeah, if you can write a song that's a Christmas song that catches on or a song that like gets played at sports arenas, <laughs> you, can yeah. really, you can really yeah, do yeah. well. Yeah. I liken it to inventing Kleenex. <laughs> yeah, you got to use it and throw it away, yeah. <laughs> and then so you got to get it again. <laughs> before we move on from Good Vibrations, do you remember hearing the first time you heard the finished edit? Oh, I do, <laughs> I do. I I just sat there and went, "Oh my god!" Yeah, See, I wasn't born yet when Good Vibrations came out, but it's hard to really You're imagine. Kidding. I'm born in '72. Oh, so that's it's, amazing. It's hard to imagine the impact it must have, what it must have sounded like when it was new. It was it was such a great impact that that whole the, well the whole Pet Sounds album, right? That capital, like even good vibrations in particular is even a whole other. Oh yes, yeah, I mean, a whole other yeah. Level, well, level. You gotta, you see, everybody goes after the good vibrations one, mm -hmm. where God only knows is just, as far as I'm concerned, just a great piece of music. Yeah, the way that song's <clears throat> written, the changes you know, in the melody. You know, my so, two yeah. favorite albums of all time are Smiles Number One, Pet Sounds is Number Two. 
you were all over both those records. Oh, yes, and, and and so was Leon. Leon Russell's on yeah. some of them. Yeah. Larry Nectow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish I could say I was the only pianist. It was, you you know, that was such a wonderful time because there was about nine of us, and we and it still wasn't enough. That so how do you know? When you, when you back, look at the credits, it's usually you. Well, <laughs> but how do you know? How do, if it's Nectow on the session as well? How do you know if it's you, Russell, Nectel? Can you tell you guys apart? Most of the times you can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but like H.B. Barnum even said, I could get any one of those guys, and they'd give me what I wanted. Right, yeah. Because yeah. we knew, we, we knew where he was going. That's kind of the task going. of a session player is, you know, you have to be able to play in a lot of different kind of fields well, you, yeah. under, you understand being a pianist yourself mm-hmm. that, you know, you're the ultimate clone. Right. You know, right. you're the doctor. Yeah, you're generating the script of the song. The, the there you go. Yeah. Okay, Broken Arrow. What do you remember about that? First thing that comes to mind. Neil Young. <laughs> and my boat trip. <laughs> so this is a group that, you know, fragmented. Don almost, got, Neil, Don almost got Neil Young eaten by a shark. I don't know if you know that That's story. right. That's, I know the story. I know. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget it. And he, and he won't. Yeah, yeah. Neil, that was the only time Neil was ever milk white. Okay, he's a rebel. Now we're going back to, uh, like, serious, iconic. What, what do you remember from that? That was the like start the of it. Thing. That was yeah. the, first that was the session, start right? of it with, yeah. with Phil Spector, with the crystals, you know. Yeah. Onward and upward. I and think we to did. do Ron Ron and Then He Kissed Me. Three of the greatest songs ever made. I mean. And then and then you have to include Darlene Love and, and the Blossoms that were the background with the crystals and took over a lot of the lead stuff on occasion. Right. And then, of course, the Ronettes came right after that. Right. So and it, that record, the Ronettes featuring Veronica, uh, is simply one of the greatest albums. Talk about Ronnie, being loaded with good material. That's Phil Spector, though. Yeah. He, he knew that the talent was there. I think his biggest detriment was that he got tired of the artists he was producing too fast. Uh-huh. If he had been better at the executive management, he would have hired another producer. Hey, I want you to continue producing the Crystals. Right. I'm going to go be doing this one. I want you now. I'm through with the Ronettes. I want you to continue doing the Ronettes, like a Bones Howe or something. Yeah, and now yeah. I, I want you. He had the guy sitting right there playing guitar. Turned out to be one of the greatest uh, producers, Russ Tidelman. Right. Yeah, yeah. Rusty came out. I mean, he could have taken over. Yeah. Steve Douglas, the saxophone uh-huh. player, became a great producer at Capitol. I guess people like that, like Phil and his personality, you really has got to have his hands on it or else right. It's like like the not... ego pulls you yeah, back from right. it. Yeah, you yeah. have to be able to step aside and, and look at. The whole situation. Yeah. But he, you know. I mean, okay. So just the opening trill on the Jackson 5's ABC, you would be, if, if, even if you just crawled into that session and never did anything again, you'd be a legend. Well, that, that one, you know, that, that was, I got the call. Yeah. I didn't know what it was going to be. And there is this gorgeous little bunch of kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Michael would come sit next to Mr. Randy, can you show me how to play that? And I'd show him and he'd play it. So <laughs> get away from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Spanish Harlem, another uh, great song. Sure. Um, okay, so uh, Eve of Destruction. Oh, uh, here you go. <laughs> now we're getting into it. That but one was such a huge hit at the time, and you don't really it hear it much now. You Number one. I didn't know the title of the song. <laughs> I, I just knew it was B- Buffalo Springfield, and those guys were coming in, you know. And he was the Eskimo for the Mamas and Papas. He That's brought right. the Mamas and Papas in for a background singing sure, session. Sure, sure. Um, uh, who was it? The, the guy that had the... Uh, uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name. Which guy? The Eve of Destruction. Barry, Barry McGuire. Barry, Barry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he worked my intermissions at a little club called The Losers on the Sunset Strip before it went down to La Cienega. Then it became The Winners after The Losers. <laughs> and before that, it was Bobby Adler's 881 Club, right right at Crescent Heights, just off Crescent Heights and, and Sunset. Trini Lopez worked my intermissions. Cool, cool. Johnny Rivers worked my... Nice. And here they all were becoming stars, and I was still getting my jazz sets. Yeah, <laughs> only, get, only getting the greatest kids yeah. in the world. <laughs> uh, all right, tell us, tell us about uh, your foray into eating pot brownies while working with Laura Nero and Save the Country. <laughs> We took a break, and she had baked these uh, wonderful brownies. Earl Palmer was on the date. I was. I forget some of the other guys. The song is amazing. And, and Such a good song. So we all had some brownies and had to come back after lunch. You know, we had a, That was our dessert for lunch. And everybody came back and just sat there <laughs> staring at one another. Like, what, what the hell? And, and Earl's looking at me. I forget who the producer was. And all of a sudden we heard, 
you know what, guys? Let's come back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and nobody, nobody got it. Was upset or anything? Okay. That's a that's a really cool song. It would have been really hard to play that on Pop Brownies. It's a lot of like uh, that song's not easy to play. Uh, you, you know what? People don't realize you were, we would do th- three different artists in one day sometimes. So we loved if we got to to do one artist for, for three days in a row, because we became more a, a part of that record. Right, but right. But so many times, you know, the the especially if you're working for the Warner Brothers, Capital or Capital Capital Warner Brothers Reprise, um, Dot Records, they had a budget. Those those were the corporate guys. Right. They weren't independent like Brian Wilson or Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. Those guys had to bring it in because they, they had to stay within budget. Otherwise, right. they could get fired. Uh-huh. You know, that was their job. So that's why we did so many so so quickly. But we also had to be capable of doing that. There was, yeah, wasn't know, I, that many guys that could just. We walk were in. chatting a little bit about before we started recording about the the Beatles documentary, and um, when they, you watch them try to learn a song, they don't really do it super fast. No, <laughs> they're not like professionals. No, they're, no. In a way, they're, they're guys. You know, they're uh, they're amazing musicians. They're incredible at what they do. Sure, but they're not like you know wrecking crew where they'll pick a song up yeah. in twenty minutes and like yeah, yeah. get a take a half hour later. You know, they got to work it all out kind of painstakingly. You know, you know, and, and so many times. The magic of it, you know, which doesn't happen as often today because of the way things are recorded. Mm-hmm. But somebody would would make a, the error, the mistake, yeah. and who did that? Let's go that direction. And things have you a know, certain uh, things have a certain yeah. energy to them when you're just discovering them, when you're just getting to the part where you really know the tune, and everybody's still excited, and it's like there's like a magic, like little window, like a little golden hour window yeah. to really capture it. And know? and that's that that gives you the memories too. Now everything that, that they, now they just fix everything in the computer. Well, sure, <laughs> cut and paste, cut and, like, and paste, <laughs> cut and paste. <laughs> All right, tell us about Elvis Presley. Tell us about working with Elvis on Little Less Conversation. Oh, that's that's great. I I, I love that story because there was no song. Uh, if, <laughs> if you if you look at or, or remember those those songs in Elvis's movies, they were horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Clam maybe bank. one out of ten. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, but they were that's being generous because they would grind them out. Yeah. So we were. I forget the name of the movie uh, where Little Less Conversation came from. It's like a uh, artist, a but it car. Was, he's an auto. Like he's yeah, a car yeah. racer guy or something. But Billy Strange and Mac Davis were the, were the writers on it, and we were, we had just finished doing something, and uh, the producer of the film or the director was there, and they said we need one more song. We decided we want to put a song in this thing, and Mac Davis and Billy look. What do you mean? We 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 well we we need another song. So guys, take a break. The whole band takes a break, and they go out for ten minutes. And they come. We come back in. Take another break. We come back in, and and finally they have a few chords on a piece of music, a possible lyric, and that's it. And we're we're all looking out. Every the band sits down, and we're looking at it, and we're, we kind of do a run through. And then Hal Blaine says, "Why don't I just start it with the drum thing?" This and and I'll say, "I think I'll lay out to this part, and I'll come in here." And we actually made this song a little less conversation on on the run. Yeah, you arranged it right there on the spot. Right? It's, yeah. it's yeah. done. Yeah, and uh, that's amazing. It, it's a great song. It's, it's got the recording's got a lot of it's got a lot of attitude to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but the people didn't realize, and it didn't happen. It was the only song in that film that ever got any recognition. Yeah, one and of it, his one of his best songs from that period in general. Is, you know, yeah, that that one's a real gem. It was, and and it didn't happen till three years later, really. Mm-hmm. And then it became a giant, and then everybody had it on commercials and on this. The initial date was $165, I think we got paid <laughs> for that. And over the years, which is a long time now since that movie, I think it must be close to $10,000 all of us got in residuals mounting up over the years, mm-hmm. which is really pretty fantastic when you think about that. Hey, listen, you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Good Vibrations, and Pet Sounds, when Pet Sounds was done, Capital put it on the shelf. They didn't know how to handle it. Yeah, they put out a, a Best of the Beach Boys. Best of the Beach Boys. Which basically means, I guess, you're good, you're done. Yeah, so what what, what, are you, what are they thinking of? You know, these, But unfortunately, those are the guys that are in control. They're mostly accountants. Right. You yeah. know, and... and uh, that uh, never really changed in the music no, business. No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> That's pretty no. I mean, much exactly A great the same. story that actually symbolizes how ridiculous the music yeah. industry is, is you became quite well-known for your harpsichord solo and different drum. Yes. So they wanted you to do a solo album 
which features no harpsichord at all. <laughs> Capital Records. Yeah. Da- David, thank, In their infinite wisdom, right? Thank God for David. David Axelrod. He was the one that pulled that together. That's so sure. you, you worked with Kurt Betcher, did you not? I think on, so. Uh, on the Association record? Yeah, sure. Do you remember working with him? Kind of. You know, yeah. I remember more, more working with uh, Ray Pullman, mm-hmm. who was a guitar player and bass player, who helped them with a lot of the vocalese. And putting it together. Ray was I love one. that record. Oh, it's great. I love that record. It's, it holds up very well. Also, another <laughs> one you did around that time, which I've always uh, felt strongly for, is Tim Buckley's Goodbye in uh, Now that's close to my heart. Mm-hmm. I love Tim, Buck- Tim Buckley because I had always heard about someone who could play fit that finger slide that he plays. Mm-hmm. And then to watch him do it and to hear the, the sheer power that it could create instrumentally man it just blew me away i've had seen i had seen guys do it before but not the way tim did it tim Mm -hmm. did it with such ease and he he later his his music later got bogged down in some weird some weird attempts at different things yes first couple records the first few records are amazing that was on a lecture wasn't it yes Yes. it was yes Um, that one's great. You're on Taproot Manuscript. Actually, uh, I could be wrong about this, but you, one of your first forays into arranging was Cracklin' Rosie. Oh, yeah. Or was it your first foray? No, that was uh, that came way later. That I was did, in I 70. did a lot of, yes. Yeah, yeah which was a number one and a fantastic song. Um, <clears throat> how about working still with... Lightning Rounding? Yes, right? Yeah, Lightning Rounding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another artist I love, Mickey Newberry. Ah, oh, yeah. Love Mickey Newberry. Now, you know, I did too, and that's when we did the, that that tribute where we did all those songs, the trilogy. That right, which Elvis yeah, you know, loved. The you know, tril- yeah. that, and you know, that was done at a little studio about the size of this that Electra had off La Cienega Boulevard. It, nobody even knew it was there. I think Bruce Botnick might have been the engineer. and, and produced, he, was the, he engineered Forever Changes, which yes, you also yes, yeah. played on. Yeah. Um, Do you remember much about that? Those sessions, forever changes, and were you aware of love being kind of the big thing in the Sunset Strip and all that? Not really, Mm -hmm. Uh, but because the situation was they were so pretty whacked out that they hardly were right. They had to bring in you guys. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were on heroin and and acid. Yes, it's hard to find. From what I can ascertain about those two drugs, it'd be pretty hard to function on both of them. Well, Well, see, records like that where it's um, you know, or like like the Monkees or Love or some of those Birds record where it's you guys playing it. That that doesn't that just adds to how much I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. We enjoy it more. Like I I have a really soft spot for those monkeys records. They're amazing um, because it's like it's they're really well written songs. Um, you know they're charismatic singers and it's all the Wrecking Crew guys playing amazing like doing their take kind of on the Beatles. You well, know, so th- there's a three little guys. They were kids. Yeah. D- Dino, Desi, and Billy. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. sure. Right. Same they yeah, could, yeah. They were they were pressures. Right. You know they they and we, we would come in. And poor Billy Henshee just passed away a couple yeah, of years ago. Yeah, I, I did see that. And he was yeah. such a good guy. Yeah. And he had a podcast that mm-hmm. was going on for right. quite a few years. Mm-hmm. So Joe and I have had a very soft spot for an album that you did with Nelson, The Point. Uh, oh. <laughs> I can't believe that's you on Me and My Arrow. Because yes. I've been listening to that forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, What a great record. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I, had, I adored Harry Nelson. Mm-hmm. You know when I adored Harry Nelson when he... There was a little deli called the Gaiety Deli on Vine Street. And then next to the Gaiety was Crocker Citizens Bank, where he worked as a teller. Mm-hmm. And then next to that was Wallach's Music City, the famous music store, where everybody went to buy their records. And, and it was just a, they had all the listening booths in there. But I remember us sitting one day with, I was sitting with Roger Miller, Phil Spector, and Lee Hazelwood, Sonny Bono. We're all having. <laughs> Corned beef sandwiches and the gay, and here comes Harry with his demos on a cassette oh, tape, nice. <laughs> passing yeah. them out, mm-hmm. and, and with his white shirt and his his tie on, the short sleeve white shirt. <laughs> I'll never forget that. It was the first time I met Harry, mm-hmm. and then later on, of course, you know, he what a genius. Yeah, what a voice. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah he's but also, incredible. people missed that whole thing of the point. Mm-hmm. It never got the the. Uh, uh, it's yeah, it's so the, good. You know, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. You know? But that's life, you know, yeah. you can't... Uh, well, no, it lives on. I think people I mean, our age kind of... Uh, yeah, fil- it's... It filtered down, its way down it, to us. It, it yeah. will continue on. Yeah. You know? I mean, because the people who care about it, like like the two of us, yeah. 
are evangelistic about it. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it was an important piece of music, you yeah. know, just yeah. as important as, as a lot of other things was. Okay, yeah, speaking of it. important pieces of music, the last song that I want to throw your way on the speed round, yes. Don't Mean Nothing, off the Nancy Sinatra tribute record. Uh, <laughs> God knows that. I, it's not, that's a hard one to remember. Okay, I mean, well, we there's, did, a, there's a reason we brought it up. Why? So that was my friend Pete Yorn wrote that song. Yes. And um, the recording, Nancy sang on top of his recording, which had me playing piano on yes. it. Yes. But they took me off and they overdubbed you over me. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> yeah. You're kidding. I don't even. And then they told me, they're like, yeah, Nancy wanted to have Don play on it. I was like, well, you know what? I'm honored. That, that, honor. that wouldn't surprise me. But then around mm. the same time, I got my revenge because yeah. he was making a record called Nightcrawler yeah. and they had brought Leon Russell in to play on some on some stuff well, and there was a tune that he just kind of was not getting it had like a couple of bars of six in it <laughs> like he just wasn't in the mood to do yeah. it so they I ended up um, going over his part oh that's so pretty neat that <laughs> revenge <laughs> is a dish best served <laughs> you know there were so many times when you you'd get called in for some stupid reason but mm -hmm. You had it. What are you gonna if you if you don't take the call? Oh sure, yeah. Then the next guy's gonna take the yeah. call. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what what is the record of yours that you play the most to this day? Of so, something that so from something that you played, played on, on yeah. yeah. That I've played on mm -hmm. that well, any one of the Spectre dates and and Love and Feeling. Okay. Love and Feeling gets more play than you know, and then God only knows, you know, and and the story with God only knows is. In in the film, they did a thing, the making of Pet Sounds, and you know Brian, there's Brian, and they redid the scene of me and him arguing <laughs> over how of the passage should go. He had it, ba -da -da -da, very legato, right, right, and it wasn't working. Uh -huh. And he kept saying, "No, come on, guys, you can play it better." And I kept uh -huh. saying, "Do it short." Right, right. And he kept saying, "No, no, Don," and and you hear the argument, uh -huh. and finally said, "Okay." And we and that was it, and that's how it ended up on the record. It's also great short because you get that little plinky little delay. Hey, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, you don't miss anything. <laughs> Jesus. So, but you, are, you know what? You know what's amazing for me? I'm so non-technical my whole life. I I always need help mm -hmm. when it comes to that. Is how he managed four tracks. Yeah, right. He was the master of ping ponging. Yeah, they combining. went to do like uh, reduction mixes. They called and, them then. And, yeah. and, and right. he could. He was already planning that. Okay, I'll put that with that. Yeah, but As, the thing is, having those limits makes you have to be creative because you have to plan it out. You have to commit to things. Yeah, yes. you have to make yeah. commitments. So yes, without we, that, we with, with the boundlessness, but that, yeah, that's that's a great point because Brian could accept that. Yeah, I, I would take me. I'd still be there. You right, know, right. ten years later, trying to do yeah, it. Yeah. Now, so, now you have like three hundred tracks in these Pro Tools files. It's infinity. Every, everyone's you know. got one little string on each channel. So, and sure. like, conversely, <laughs> tell me about some records that you feel didn't get the success they deserved. Oh boy, um, <laughs> there was a, a lady by the name of Beryl Davis who had an incredible voice. She was one of the uh, Jane Russell, Beryl Davis, and somebody else had a trio. And they'd sing all the lounges. They were unbelievable. And I always thought that she never got the proper break. And she was, I guess, dating somebody who was a, a, a producer at Capitol at that point. And Dorsey Burnett, the singer and songwriter, produced her. Hmm. That was one of the, my first arrangements I did for her. And I always thought she, she never got the, the due she could have. Uh, I, I think Darlene Love... As popular as she is, because everybody in the industry knows her, she should have been a monster star way a back after, when. After, after the you know, records, right. yeah. She should have done that. Uh, um, uh, what was the name of the guy who didn't follow through who did Call Me for A&M Records? Uh, oh, Bill Withers? No, no. Uh, call Me. Ba -da 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 -da. Um, he was on A&M Records. Uh, uh, I can't. Re I think Herb Alpert signed him, mm -hmm. but I can't remember his name now. I thought he should have been a monster, monster star. Um, people, people like. There's so many records that never got heard. Yeah, you know, there was a girl that, <laughs> of all things, uh, uh, Wayne Schuler, who became a producer at Capitol, did for Buck Owens, with a with a, a girl singer, uh, Betty Swan. Mm -hmm. She never got it. You know? That's with a B E T T Y E. Yeah, I think so. It? Yeah, I think so. 
um, you know, you play on so many hits that it's just almost shocking when you hear about something that doesn't do incredibly well that you played on. Yeah. Um, So the Wrecking Crew. Before we move on from that topic, uh, we should put... um, some of those suggestions on a playlist for our fans. Some of, yeah. Some of Don's picks there. We'll, uh, we'll we'll share some of those on our website. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely put some on because there's a playlist that's going to accompany the episode. Yeah. Um, okay, the Wrecking Crew. So at what point you're doing dates? Steve Douglas brings you in in 1962 and introduces you. But at what point do you become aware that you're seeing the exact same faces all the time and that you had just basically joined a gang? Okay, well, let's, let's start it at the very beginning to get. There was no wrecking crew. It was called the Wall of Sound uh-huh. for Phil Spector. That's why got to get those guys. If you make 21 million selling records in a row, who are you going to call? You're right. going to call those guys. The piano players, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to list them Please. as many as I can. Myself, Al Delory, Mike Rubini, a friend of Phil Spector's by the name of Mike Spencer. Later on, right after that, Larry Nechtel, Mike Melvoin, uh, 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 Plas Johnson's brother, uh, um, Ray Johnson, a guy by the name of uh, Gene, uh, or what was his last name? I can't remember his last name, but these were all guys that were studio musicians. I wasn't. I didn't know, it. none of us really were till Phil Spector. And then we started to do these records and it started to interchange. A guy by the name of Lincoln Mayorker came in later on, a marvelous classical pianist, but he played a lot of rock and roll and a lot of movie dates. Then Joe Sample came out and Joe played on a lot of dates. So it, it was always, it was building the whole time. But the most amazing thing about it all there was enough work for all of us. That's, yeah, that's how good, much recording was going. That's, right. a, that's a good point. I think the culture of music in Los Angeles has always been one of sort of cooperation. It doesn't always necessarily feel like uh, hyper-competitive. You know, it's like I feel like I have my colleagues that I know that I work with. I love them all. I'm happy when they're successful. <laughs> you know, like, it's not like an other pl- – because there's so much of the professional industry is based here. <laughs> it's not like provincial so much. There's kind of still really kind of enough to go around. And I always love to say we, we were in inter- Changeable, and we didn't have time to get angry with one another because <laughs> right. we were already on another date, already right, another right. commercial, yeah. a film call. You know, I think there are a lot of people who are pros here who have that attitude of cooperation. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I think even to this day, like I'm going to go in and make this record sound good. Yes, sure. <laughs> the wall of sound is obviously is a famous term. Yes, uh, I'm. We're bo- actually Joe and I are both very curious. We know how it sounds on record. You were in that studio, so what the hell did it sound yeah, like? How did, the, in how did there? you manage what, monitoring? If, if and you stuff took like your that? cans off, what what would what, what it sound like? What would it, what it sound like what, in that room? What are, you, what are you talking? We didn't have cans on. Okay. How'd you hear yourself like playing piano? You, you just heard yourself, you know, and, and that was it. We we didn't put on. Gold Star couldn't afford to buy as many earphones. You got to remember there was five guitar players also. So how that, that's kind of my point. I think there's yeah. five guys playing through amps. Yeah, there's sure. a drummer and like you know. it was the magic of Gold Star. Right. Nobody had an echo chamber like Gold Star. And if you ever looked at it, you'd throw up. I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> so were you able to hear what Phil heard in that room, or was it later that when you heard the playback, where it you really could came have a focus? good idea of what he wanted? But till you heard it in, inside, you got to remember that was mono, right. one track. Right. So where you're sitting in the room is how it's going to sound like so, to you. Sure. Right. right yes. Right. And, okay. And also, I think everybody played conducively to each other. You got to remember you would have percussion, one drummer. Two yeah, ba- I guess you have to make your own sense of dynamics, right? You how have to how like, did he uh, get two bass players? Nobody used two bass players. <laughs> right. An upright and a Fender. Right. Because he wanted that wide sound. Mm-hmm. Chuck Berghofer. Harvey Newmark, mm-hmm. who was in my band, uh, he loved Harvey. So he And Putter Smith is another one. He'd use those guys because they knew what to give him. We do have a little list, though, of some, uh, some, some Wrecking Crew guys who I feel like maybe don't get their due. Sure. Uh, you know, Chuck Berghofer was one that we just mentioned. Yes. Um, Al Casey. Can we talk about Al oh, Casey? Al Casey was um, an amazing guitar player. and uh, Sometimes it's hard to pick out who's the guitar well, player. I'll tell you a fun story on... Uh, uh, was it something stupid? Right, the nylon guitar. Yeah, so they had finished doing a date, and then Nancy says, we're going to do a song, and she brought in her guys. Well, Glenn Campbell and I, Al Casey were guys that worked for, for Nancy with Lee Hazelwood. 
and Glenn doesn't read. You know, Glenn's you you'll learn it as mm-hmm. faster than than right. anyway. So they started, and Frank Sinatra says, "That's that, that that's not the intro I heard." You know, and Al Casey very sheepishly said to Glenn, "You know, I played it on on the original." <laughs> he says, "Do you want me to do it?" And Glenn says, "Sure." So that's Al Casey that plays right. that. Everybody thinks it's Glenn. Right, right. It sounds Al. like Glenn, but yeah, okay, that's it's right. Al Casey. Yeah. But Al Casey was a marvelous, great, not only country player, he could play anything, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, <laughs> He, I, I, he was great. He was a good friend of mine. And he had a shop on Vine Street. He decided to open a, a guitar shop mm-hmm. right near uh, Vine in Santa Monica and a little shopping mall there that everybody went to there before all the other stores opened up, mm-hmm. him and his wife. How about uh, Bill Pittman? Oh, uh, marvelous guitar player. Bill was just 101. Wow. wow. Yeah, just turned 101. We went to his – we had a big blast at his 100th birthday last year. But he was one of those – the five: Tommy Tedesco, Bill Pittman, uh, uh, Howard Roberts. Howard was He's the. Not, he was on my list as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Howard walked out on a date. He said. Mm-hmm. He told Phil. He says. He says I can't play this anymore. My hands are cramping up. <laughs> we were just playing him before he got here. You know. Uh, he <laughs> says you come in and play it. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And he Howard he picked up his little Fender amp and, and left. That was it. <laughs> and Jerry Chef. Jerry was a marvelous bass player. Incredible. And we did an album that nobody even knows about, including you guys. <laughs> Try I'll us. I'll bet you. <laughs> Try us. Okay. What was the, the hit that Larry Carlton had? Let's work backwards. Larry Carlton's solo. Uh, so, Sleepwalk. He had a big Sleepwalk, hit on okay. Sleepwalk. Okay. But who had it before Larry Carlton? Uh, it was Santo and Johnny. You got it. <laughs> That's who we got to do an album nice, with. Nice. We I with, love their stuff. Uh, that, that, Jerry Sheff and I, and I think uh, Jackie Mills might have been it's the so producer. Dreamy. Of that. I just love uh, that. It was it's great. The, is it the lap steel? Is that what they have? Uh, you know what? I don't remember. It almost sounds like they, they almost make the guitar sound like a theremin. It's, it's yeah, it, and it's very dreamy. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. It's very you know, yeah. I, they came over. They brought him over from Italy, and we were in a little studio for a week. And I, I, I never heard the album after that. And I always wondered about that. Jerry Chef told me years later that he had gotten one. So I, I, you know, this morning I was reading about this band that was put together by session guys, Clem Catini, a uh, few other dudes called uh, Ugly Custard back in 1970. <laughs> there was also Toto, uh, Rhinoceros was one in the late 60s, and Led Zeppelin. These are session guys who decided, you know what? Fuck this, hiding behind the curtain. <laughs> we want to be superstars. How do you feel about uh, that kind of methodology? Well, one of my favorite all-time bands is is Toto. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Because they started at the Baked Potato. Had That's you ever thought about doing that or no? Well, we all do. I don't care how many sessions you've done. Everybody would have the, to love to have their that moment in the spotlight, you know, and and to be out front. You know, fortunately, I've had those opportunities, and, and I, I adore them and love them, and and they're part of my life. I'm more a natural-born sideman. Uh, I don't like being in the front. Yeah. Some people. <laughs> we. I had a marvelous bass player with us, Ed Alton. He and he does a lot of TV writing, and he's a marvelous musician. And Marcus Miller comes in one night at the club and, and decides to sit in. And you know, he's a monster. You, uh, monster bass player, monster musician. And Ed Elton wouldn't come back. Marcus I could go home. He says, I'm not coming playing. Not after that. I'm not playing. He ended up having to work the whole night. Well, he would not play. You know, it's, it's, it's delightful, but it, it, it happens. You know, I've watched, I've also watched musicians destroy themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because of things that they would say. And, not realizing that what they're saying is hurtful. That's a big part of, uh, to another I think, people. the whole thing of staying a working musician is just being cool. That's a big part of it. You have to know, you know, it's, you have to know when to lay out, so to speak. Yeah, you know? right. And less, playing, less playing is and more. in life. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite stories in your book was uh, you explaining Phil Spector's methodology about the A side and the F side. Can you please lay that out? Because I think that's kind of genius. Well, Phil Spector would put out a single record, not from the LP. When the single came out, that's what the airplay was based on. So he didn't want them to play what was ever on the backside of that record, so he'd make the worst sounding records, or he'd put an instrumental on that wasn't so worst sounding, but it didn't have any lyrics right, to no, it. Or no what chance the, of being you know, on the radio, right? No, no chance that... You a, were responsible for putting some of the direct oh, absolutely. together, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the backside to Love and Feeling... Is there is an old woman who plays piano in his bar, and, and Billy, Bobby, and I wrote that. 
we didn't get credit for writing yeah, it, yeah. but what can I tell you? It, uh, Thank God, right? But two stations down south went on the B-side of Love and Feeling <laughs> with that piece of crap song. And Phil oh Spector got the, gets his reports every day, you know, his DJ reports. And he went berserk. <laughs> <laughs> he went. You've lost that Love and Feeling was a, I maybe still is the mo- single most played track in the history of radio. Is that correct? I, I think I so. I think that it was one, at one point or maybe still is. And I think one of the... I think a Beatles song might have overtaken yeah. it. I forget. It's basically you. my dad's favorite of all time. <laughs> yeah, is the Righteous Brothers. I grew up on the Righteous Brothers' yes. greatest hits. Um, yeah, my dad is a singer and has sang that a million times, and always sings the high bit. He's the tenor. Well, He's you the, know, yeah. Phil Spector had 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 them for a very short time. Had the Righteous Brothers. Yeah, like a year and a half. And then they went to MGM, and I get a call one day to to go record for them, and I, I'll be there in a heartbeat. And and Phil got really pissed off at me. Because I was going to work for the righteous, but I said, "Phil, this is my job." I said, yeah, I, "This yeah. is how I support my family. This is what I do." You know, he said, "Well, why are you working for them?" You know, I said, "Phil, I'm not working for them. I'm working for MGM. That's who I'm working for." And we didn't talk for 13 years after that. Was we it just, really that long? Oh wow. yeah. I mean, All he's right. not giving to, you like a retainer or anything. You know? No. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so the next time, but wait, the next time you worked with him was, was way later, 77. Death of a Ladies' Man, Leonard Cohen. Yes, that was okay. it. Sounds like you missed a lot of the years that were some real prime craziness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, everybody has, has a, not everybody, but most people that, that will ask me, was he shooting off guns when you were there? Yeah. I never saw a gun one time. Yeah. Well, he had that whole crazy period with Lennon where he was hanging out with John Lennon. Oh, yeah, and all sure. And, and evidently yeah. he shot the guns off and... and uh, <laughs> Yeah. I, I wasn't there, so I, I can't <laughs> right, right. be absolutely. But accurate. during the Ramon sessions, for, uh, uh, you were on those sessions. I, right? I don't know. I think I might have played one or two. They weren't there though. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. But I, I did work for for one of the Ramones who was producing. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, one of the singers that used to uh, to work for. Uh, I can't I can't remember her name right now. But he he wanted to produce her, and then I worked for Steve Douglas had put it together the saxophone uh-huh. player. But with one of the girls that was a background singer, but she, Jeannie King, she should have been out there on her own, actually. She's another great voice. So Joe and I are crazy Lee Hazelwood fans. I mean, we know all the records. I mean, every single one. Uh, you know, what so you was were kind that of, you, were, you were there like? pretty much on almost, almost all those. 110 yeah. albums. Yeah. <laughs> you, you met him on, on Boots, right? Yep. And you met Nancy on Boots. That was a great goddamn day. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> LHI. Yeah, yeah. And mm. then you wound up doing like serious pieces of art, like Some Velvet Morning. Um, that's my favorite one of, of all the songs. You and know, I Arkansas love Boots. Cole Sweet. Oh, gee. Oh, that's amazing. You know who wrote that? Who? You don't know. I don't. I, not off Dolly Parton, no. I think. Oh, oh wow. yeah. I think oh, yeah. she, I think she yeah, wrote you can, that. You can hear that. Yeah, you can yeah. hear it's kind of in her voice. And, yeah. and, and uh, Nancy, it's, it's a tough song to sing. Yeah. Very hard song to sing. I think uh, another pianist who became a ranger later on, Larry Mahobrek. Larry did a bunch of stuff. and, and uh, before, That's like their prog song. It's all over yes, the place. Yeah. It's like a movie. Yeah, it's great. I think yeah. for anybody who's like an offspring of a very famous parent, Nancy pretty much had the coolest career of yeah. any, any. You know, she, uh, uh, Bono has a song called Two Shots. Mm-hmm. And Frank should have sung it. You know, he did a version of it. Right. But Nancy's version of it is incredible, and uh-huh. never, I don't. She, she, I, I still don't know if she's released that on anything. But we used to do it on stage, uh-huh. and we did the, one year. We did the uh, Jerry Lewis telethon right after Frank had passed away, and it was up there. And I, w- I worked with Jerry, and and I had a. We did it in rehearsal, and I had to run home that night and write a big band chart because uh-huh. all my friends were in there. Right. <laughs> so, uh, we did it the next day, and and she raised. When that was on, but it was Nancy was the hardest song she ever had to sing mm-hmm. for that charity, and not only that, there's her father all over picture, and she's trying to sing that song. It was, I don't know how she made it through. It was so tough, but she raised a fortune for his charity at that point. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, there's a real interesting tension between the two in terms of what they seem to want out of life, because Nancy is a born pop star, but he seems way more interested in kind of existing on the periphery. Like his album titles, his, his well, he's got uh, a, liner he notes. He has sort of a self-deprecating kind of uh, persona. Yeah, he, yeah. He being Lee? Yes. Lee, yeah. Lee, yeah. yeah. 
uh, which is very intriguing. I Listen, mean, but he also, you know what I always admired in Lee? If it was a good song, that's all that mattered, whether he wrote it or not. Mm-hmm. He would take somebody else's song. Uh, an inter- he did a, uh, oh, come on, Brain, uh, um, Son of Hickory Hollers Tramp. We did it with, uh, I can't remember, the country artist that he had, a guy from Arizona, and we got number one record with it. The next week, right after we had recorded that, I did the same song again with O.C. Smith for Jerry Fuller, and he got a number one record hmm. out of it. So I, there were a period of a week to 10 days, I did both of them. I arranged the first one, oh, I almost had his name, real great, great country singer. But with Lee, Lee had a, a, a wonderful way of re- recognizing that a song is good. Mm-hmm. That's a true A&R man. Jimmy Bowen was another guy like yeah, that. Yeah, at least seemed you like know. he was like a real big picture guy. Like he could see what the record was going to be like. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah. He's thinking of it in those terms. He also was a cheap record. son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems I, I like he's a, got some uh, quirks to his personality. with him over everything. <laughs> <laughs> what was his name? Harper. Uh, um, oh, he had this wonderful artist we did. Uh, um, Who grew that mustache first? Was it you or him? No, him. <laughs> yeah, I had him on. But uh, uh, um, oh, I try to remember this kid who who had a um, a stuttering problem, but when he sang, he sang just so beautifully. Not Jerry Reed. No, no. Uh, Jerry uh, Reed sang. Uh, um, I know who you're talking about. It's on uh, Lee's Mel label. Mel Tillis. Uh, Mel Tillis. Uh, something I, not Lee. Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed did not stutter. I was it's thinking It's something Mel with Tillis. Lee in it. Har- not Harper Lee. Uh, um, uh, it's, uh, I can't remember. If I had the list in front of me, I'd recognize it. But he had he had another guy, uh, um, Wayne. Something Wayne, something who was Glenn Campbell before Glenn Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, it just never happened. A bunch of a bunch of the things that on that label, I always thought a bit of it was okay. Let's go in and cut this, and I think some of that was part of his business, so mm-hmm. that if it didn't happen, he could write it off. You know, he's another example of an artist. I mean, I think him and you know, the records he made with Nancy, where those kind of got reappreciated by people our age. And then he wound up working with other female singers, which, which, who were fantastic, like Susie Jane Hokum. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, like, uh, you know the Cowboy in Sweden record? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we love that record. What and about a song, What If I Gave a Little War and Nobody Came? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever hear that song, that yeah, Susie yeah. Jane? Oh, it's yeah. wonderful. Nice trumpet parts in that one that I wrote for her. Yeah, I love all the side projects he did with all the the uh, the girl groups and sure. Uh, sure, all the LHI stuff is fantastic. And and Lee, as 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 a big a hillbilly he was, he loved jazz. He mm-hmm. loved all kinds of music. I shouldn't say just jazz, but he, he liked to come to jazz clubs all the time. He would always come to see us wherever we played. So that was kind of neat on his part. And uh, so did Nancy, for that matter. Yeah. But uh, um, was was Frank jealous of your relationship and closeness with Nancy? Not at all. <laughs> uh, are you <laughs> kidding? Frank's father, uh, Nancy's father, and I got along great. That's good. Yeah. I mean, there's some great stories in my book about it, but he he respected it. You know, I turned down that job. I could have had that job. It was given up twice by two different piano players that were with him. You just and didn't. I just, I didn't no. Yeah, you got to remember, Frank's a, you know he's like a pro. You know he's like a musician yeah. too. He speaks the yeah, same yeah. language. You know, you know like it, but you didn't want that kind of stress. We, we had a, an incredible drummer that traveled. We were opening for Frank, and his name was Bobby Economo, one of the best. He was with what Blood, a name. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, a couple <laughs> uh-huh. of other bands. But he was with my band for a couple of years. And he, you talk about when you're a pianist, you don't want to have to wonder where the time is ever, <laughs> so that if you want to change the time, you can, and you know what's going to go with you. You don't have to worry about it. Bobby Economo is that. Man, he is so solid. Deep, we, we call deep pockets. Mm-hmm. He'll go as deep or as on an edge as you want, mm-hmm. and he knows when to do it. <laughs> but we were all in tuxedos, you know, all that, except for Irv Cutler, who is Frank Sinatra's drummer, would always have these wonderful, beautiful patent leather shoes on. And, and you know, that was Frank's drummer. I, and I, we all adored Irv. He was such a wonderful guy. But Bobby Economo had a tuxedo on, and these dirty sneakers that he would put on right before he would go up to the drums because he didn't want his the drums flying all He was a hard hitter, you know. And Frank would stand there and look at him and look down and just shake his head. What the fuck? So, so would, a gig, would a gig like that have been like unnecessary, have someone unnecessarily breathing down your neck? No. Is that, what it, is that why you turned it down? Or? No, I, I, you know, I'll tell you exactly why I turned it down. I was making more money than 10 guys in his band for just playing piano for Nancy. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. Right. An upset. Frank right. Frank paid well, but not like what Nancy paid. <clears throat> not like what Elvis paid. Not right, what a, right. But when you worked for Frank, it was prestige, you know, so yeah. you had to look at it that way. Right. Plus, if you're, you, if you're out on the road, it's kind of the same thing uh, these days. If you, you have to kind of weigh whether you're going to want to do a tour or if you're doing a lot of dates, you know, if you're sure. doing a lot of sessions. Yeah. Like, you know, p- people... <laughs> Fortunately, I have my family is very large, and I have kids, uh, lots of kids around, so I get to hear what's happening today, mm-hmm. yeah. not yesterday, but right, what's right. happening right now right. most of the time. And it keeps me going, mm-hmm. so that if somebody said, "Can you do something like like the brand tool?" I would know what they were talking <laughs> right. about. Yeah. You know, I yeah. hope never. I hope no one ever asks you that. I hope they do. <laughs> that, <laughs> they that, do that, that happens to be one of my favorite bands. <laughs> really, I, I love that band. Yeah. I think Danny Carey. Yeah, I know is, Danny. Cool. Danny is one of the most <laughs> underestimated drummers yeah. around. You know, he's speaking incredible. of drummers. Those were the first guys I kind of uh, knew when I came to L.A. Were the guys from? Oh, I didn't know you knew them because I played in Lusk. Yes, yeah, I, 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 I know. Joe, so you, you know how they they have a room just a little bigger than this room is, and the one wall, because none of them read, mm-hmm. is blackboard, mm-hmm. and that's how they do it. And if something's not right, they take an eraser. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> okay, let's and then read. <laughs> I so, love it. I, I'm curious, you know, because uh, this is someone I've actually done a bunch of research on. Uh, Jim Gordon, the, the session drummer. I'm just curious if you had felt that he had that kind of dark energy in him at the time. It never was dark. It yeah, never no. was dark. He had powerful energy, and he was wonderful to play with. You, yeah. He's an incredible drummer. I, I and, mean, a, and a groove player, too. And, and another guy that could play anything mm-hmm. with ease. Yeah. And he and he always got a nice sound of his drums. Uh, he, he was so easy to play with, and... and, and Playing live with him was so much fun, you know, to just to play in a club with him because he could express himself. Yeah, so and he played at the Baked Potato. He did, sure. Yeah. One of the okay, tell us about uh, one of the stories I loved in your book. It was the uh, story about Dale Evans, the session with. Dale oh Evans. my God! And I bet you can tell it better in person than it is in the book. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I really empathize with you in that session because the, I've the, been in that exact position. The, the rhythm section was, uh, well, it, was it was the Anita Kerr was the arranger and, and choral director. And she had eight or 10 of the greatest voices you could ever hear, all the top studio people in, in uh, Los Angeles, the mm-hmm. best. This was the best of the best. And she had written beautiful vocalese for, for Dale Evans. And Dale Evans wrote a song called Jesus is Coming. I know he is coming. Jesus is coming someday. For those of you who don't know who Dale Evans is, she's sort of a country, like very wholesome. Uh, and Roy, Roy Rogers' wife. Part, right, wife, right. <laughs> so she's like, you know, the uh, yeah. very, very famous. Very famous. <laughs> and, 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 and delightful person. Right. The, the rhythm section was just Earl Palmer on drums, Carol Kay on bass, and myself playing piano. Can't beat that. And and we're, it was at Capital, actually, Capital A, where we were doing this. And we had already done a couple of sides, and now this one came up. And Anita Kerr turns to, to Earl and Carol. She says, you know, I think I just like Don on this alone. It's it's very, it, it, it calls for that. So I sit down, and I'm looking. There is not a seventh or a flat five. Everything is white chords no as I chords prefer them. numbers no. <laughs> I mean everything is so you know it's it's what it is it's it's not gospel music but it's church and Gail Evans or Dale Evans <laughs> has a, a vibrato in her voice when she holds long notes that you can row a boat through <laughs> <laughs> and here we are we're listening and we start doing it and she's He's coming. He's coming. And, and I'm looking at all these singers who are right just opposite me. And they're just, and it's sharp and it's flat. And they're singing like they're doing the greatest symphony. And I'm thinking to myself, they got to know how fucking bad she sounds. And, and they go straight ahead and we stop. And Anita stops. She's just, let's, let's start again. We start again. And now we do it a second time. We get about a third of the way through. She stops. She's, she's conducting. She stops. She says, let's start again. We do this about five or six times, and I'm looking over at these singers who are totally ignoring her because they must know. They're it's got to be hard sing. to sing with they're, that going they're, on. They're hearing yeah, yeah. what I'm hearing in my earphones. 
And now it starts to strike me funny. <laughs> and I start, and now Earl is behind the, the window of the studio. He's looking out, and he sees me, and he, and he goes like this. He puts his finger in and goes, don't do it, you know, and I'm, which was worse. And I'm playing, and finally about the 11th take, God knows where it is. I can't take it anymore. And she hits a note <laughs> that, that is not on this earth, and I lose it, and I just, <laughs> I just cracks me up. And Anita Kerr turns around and looks at me. She's staring at me. She wanted to kill me. And and they're all so quiet, like they're totally ignoring, and I can't stop laughing. She says, "That's I'll finish this myself." So I got up and I walked out of the studio, and I couldn't stop camp. So her her husband was the contractor, and he's yelling at me and threatening me. I said, "Don't, don't threaten me!" And Earl walks over and says, "You can't do that. Not that." And and uh, they had to pay me for the dates anyway. But she kicked me off the date. But that's an absolutely true story. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your club because you have a legendary club. And I'm curious, it's called the Baked Potato. It's been going on, uh, it's been open running now for 51 years. And I'm curious how you continue to, uh, to run a club like this and also how you found time to open one during an era when you were, you know, uh, going to sessions constantly. Well, I'll tell you one of the main reasons I did it. I worked for a guy from 1957 to 1969. His name was Pat Denisent, and he had a club called Sherry's, which is a famous little jazz trio club that Hampton Hawes used to play at, Pete Jolly played at, and I would get the off night, and the off night I got was when Marty Page didn't want to play there anymore with the great bass player Joe Mondragon. It was a duo. A guy heard me playing down on 6th Street and said, the club owner, Pat, said, come up and you can work Sunday nights because I know you're not working for Marianne then. So I came up and we started playing on, on Sunday nights with a duo and I hate it. So I said, I have to have drums. So I was the first one to bring a drum in that little club and I stayed there and, and I just loved playing there, playing live. But when 63 and 64 started, I was hardly there. So Leon Russell was my substitute piano player. Mike Melvoin was my substitute piano player. Bruce Johnston of the Beast Boys <laughs> was my... So all these guys were filling in for me all the time. And uh, finally, the club owner, who was like a second father to me, Pat says, listen, you little he bastard, you know? <laughs> he says, don't, don't pull that shit with me. He says, one day you're going to get your own place and then you'll aggravate the shit out of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so was, it, was he prescient in making that comment? <laughs> well... Pat was like, he was like a second father to me, very close. I get choked up every time I talk about him. He was a great guy. I mean, he, he should have been a movie star. That's how good looking he was. He was he was like John Payne, if you can imagine. And he was he was connected. What can I tell you? I worked for him for, for 13 years. I never had to buy clothes. He would always send me, go here, go here. <laughs> and he, he was that kind of guy. He was a great. And his son, Gino, who just recently passed away, was very close to me also. But because of that, that whole time that we, that we were there, I, I'm losing my train of thought, but, um, I got to meet so many, so many great people and, and meet other piano players mm -hmm. and stay busy, but I always enjoyed the live audience, to have somebody respond to something you played or somebody not to respond, uh, which is a thing that I'm trying to teach. Well, I'll go do a seminar and, and the thing for all of us that are, have the gift of, of being able to entertain somebody and maybe, maybe bring enjoyment to them, and some nights you'll be playing with a band, and the band is the most cohesive thing, and you're sitting there, and man, you're burning. Everything goes where everything's supposed to go without you having to say anything, without you having to think, and then the audience is there, and, and you finish a tune, and it's... <laughs> yeah. And then the other nights, you want to kill everybody on the bandstand because nothing is cohesive, and you're fighting, and everybody, is, and the audience is loving it, and they're applauding like you're right, the right. biggest star. How do you explain that? 
Yeah, I got to say, I miss playing in front of audiences. You know, I, I kind of sort of semi-retired from touring when we had our little yeah. one, and then the pandemic happened, and I'm kind of really missing the thing of, of getting that instant response, you know. Still you know, making a lot of music, but... We, we will definitely get to, when we talk about Axel, we'll get to your greatest gig ever, the electric prunes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, but the potato uh, is blessed with such a great uh, location. Yeah. The location's really wonderful. It's right, it's, it's it was in the a, perfect it, part of town. It was a little print shop. Mm-hmm. And I was very good friends with Carmen Maselli. I've been friends with him since 1954 till he passed away, and I know all his sons. Carmen's Maselli's had five, four or five places in Los Angeles at one point. And Carmen was a big jazz lover. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, the one in Hollywood, he still has the, the uh, they still play duo jazz up there uh-huh. at the one in Hollywood on Las Palmas. And I think they still do out a little bit at the one not far from the baked potato, they, or they play opera. Uh-huh. It's like classic opera that the, all the right. waiters and waitresses sing. But Carmen Maselli was the one. He says, "There's you know a couple of places down from from my my other place," and that's where we came. Uh-huh. And uh, there was nothing there, and I, we didn't have a liquor license. We opened with beer and wine, and uh-huh. Mike Melvoin, a great pianist, uh-huh. a great guy too. He worked one night a week for two or three years and had a different rhythm section, a different bass player, a different guitar player, or a different drummer. Every every week, I think he might have repeated two or three times, mm-hmm. but you name him, fame or not famous, they played with him yeah. on that off night. Well, not, I mean, in the history of that venue, the, the, amount of, the, the sheer, uh, it must be staggering everyone who's played there over the and, years. And I, that was a Steinway B that mm-hmm. we had in that club, so it was a good, a really good piano. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, Everybody wanted to play it, and we had a, it was tuned every two times, two, three times some, a week mm-hmm. sometimes. And Keith Albright, the master tuner, took care of us mm-hmm. till we stopped using the... <laughs> I was the only one using the Steinway. Right. Yeah. Everybody went to electronic keyboards. Mm-hmm. Even, the, even the Steinway was midied. Right. And it had that Forte MIDI mod put in it. Uh-huh. It sounded pretty good, actually. Uh-huh. But that, that club, and to maintain a jazz club in this city... Got to remember, Dante's was open at that. There was four places in Studio City that had jazz. Right. But it was great. There was enough for everybody. Right. You, you could have, you could make the rounds. Mm-hmm. They were called rounders. People that would, you know, okay, let's hit this the place. The potato has outlasted them all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It it's has. impressive, especially given how busy you are, were and are. I mean, when you set it up, and you know, it's it's stunning and staggering that you've been able to keep it up. Shelly Mann called me. You know, he had that club for years. About six months after we were in it. He says, Don, are you out of your fucking mind? Just like that. I said, why? He says, good luck. He says, you better watch your, your receipts every night. Whoever was there was supposed to be a friend of his and was, was killing him for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And he could never figure it out because he was too busy in his studio, you know. Yeah. Michael Brecker called me from New York. They had that club, the Brecker Brothers in New York. Mm-hmm. And he says, he says, Don, what the hell is going on? He says, well, what should I do? You want to make it into a baked potato? I said, I don't know. He says, I, he says, I don't know what to do with the waitresses, the bartenders. I said, can I ask you a question? What kind of car is your bartender driving? <laughs> and that was it. Mm-hmm. He was killing him. Right. That was it. And I wasn't even there. I, I just had a feeling that if you can't, you know, you have to have reliable people if you're going to have a business like that because yeah. it's very easy for everything to disappear. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's not an easy business as it is right, just right. to make a living. To it seems make like it work. Uh, jazz is kind of on the upswing in LA the last like ten years yes. or so. It seems like it's kind of moved here again. <laughs> well, it's not so much. <laughs> I remember we were just talking about this the other day uh, about when you took a girl out and and you were like eighteen or seventeen. And you said you were a musician, and they wanted to know what's your real job, <laughs> you <Yeah. know>? right. <laughs> or what else do you do? You know? <laughs> I get that a lot still. <laughs> I, you know, to, to this day, we're very fortunate. I have been very fortunate to be in the right place many times at the right time, and to be able to get to do all that stuff that I did. I mean, I've, it, it's it's wonderful, and at the same time, it was some of the worst music I ever played was on some of those dates but also some of the greatest music mm-hmm. I got to play on. You know. You're just stretching out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is where you get to... And you don't really know. what, what it, If I knew what every time I walked in the studio what it was going to be a hit, you know, I'd be wealthy. You, know, I, you, you could do anything you wanted, but you can't do that. You don't know. And, and fi- I always like to say people listen 
with their eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, many, many times that's the occasion. They could care less if it's the old Elvis or the new Elvis, you know, the young Elvis or the old Elvis. Mm -hmm. And there are, and fortunately, Elvis reached all those people. The old audience will never leave them. Mm -hmm. And now some of the younger ones, when they see and find out about it, they might cotton on to it also. The 1968 comeback special. Yeah. That's me playing piano through right. that whole thing. Right. That's unbelievable. I am proud of that. I yeah. mean, that's a, been a, a great thing I got to play on, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it must be a good feeling that, that almost all of the music that you made will go on generation after generation, and, and, and you'll still be around, you know, hopefully forever because of that. And for me, I've always admired celebrity. I can't get away from it. I mean, to me, standing, having a conversation just like you and I are having right now with Elvis mm -hmm. or with Frank or with Bobby Darren or with Jimmy Darren or, you know, to, to be at that close proximity. Well, and, you know, and you're meeting them on your own terms. That's which is, right. Which is the great right. thing. That, I've experienced a little bit of that. You know, you're, you're, you're it's not nice. just a random person on the street. You're there it's, for a reason. Yes, it's <laughs> nice. It's yeah. a nice feeling. Yeah. It really is. And, and uh, I, I think... Uh, not that we're searching for respect, but it's like a, a given between the people that are, are attending that situation. You know, you you can really feel it, and and when you do, it's it's nice. It, it, yeah, well, I mean, it, I, helps, I it helps to have their respect because what you bring to their world is enormous. Oh, well, that, that's that's true many times, and and what they bringing to my world is right, enormous sure. too. Sure. I mean, my my background and my connection to LA and the music business is not too different from yours. I came out here with nothing but my ability to play. I didn't have any connections or like any, you know, I just was able to help people, you know, and get into situations and make people sound good, and, and I made a life out of that sort of you know. Yeah. So it is satisfying in that respect you know it's like you kind of did it you know you you, you did it with, with just your hands yeah built it from nothing for, in this in 1954 when i came out here not far from where we are right today i had a tack hammer one of those hammers that's what i was digging ditches mm -hmm. in east l.a right. in boyle heights mm -hmm. so i could go to school and get yeah. to uh, i didn't have a ditch digging phase you, know, I, <laughs> you, 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 <laughs> na you name it i did it from 54 Yet. to 56 <laughs> I sold candy on the highway <laughs> in San Pedro, right near where the glass church is on Pacific Coast Highway, where the marine, marine, marine land of the Pacific used to be there. <laughs> that, was, that was my spot. I sold peanut brittle, butter toffee, cashews, fudge, and fudge. And the candy that I sold was made the day before it was on the highway. It nice. was so fresh. <laughs> So that's how I put myself through school. You also have that sort of thing to your legacy of just like the, the baked potato that contributed to like the history of Los Angeles. You know, yes. It's an institution of Los Angeles. That must be something you're very proud of. Oh, it, it's it an is. institution in a great city. It yeah. is. It, and, and we outlasted a lot of places. You never had to pay to play in our club. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, you always, I don't care what, if it was $25 or whatever yeah. it was that you made. Everybody has very fond you know, um, opinions and you know, feelings about the venue. And, and you know. it's, it's wild. Yeah. Well, we appreciate everything you've brought to music uh, in a way that, that uh, it probably comes off a little bit fanboyish. But, we're, <laughs> but we, we're incredibly enthusiastic about all your work, and we just want to you know, convey our appreciation and thank you for, for coming on for the interview. Sure, absolutely. All right, that just about does it. Thanks for joining us. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Don Randy, Joe Kennedy, Corbin Betleon, and the entire Patreon community. I love you, and frankly, this show would not exist without you. And be sure to stay tuned because this Tuesday brings upon us another incredible episode of Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major, wherein you'll be introduced to a whole new world of music there's very little chance you've either heard or heard of before, not to mention this Thursday's wildcard episode as well. Of course, you'll also want to tune in a week from today for Andrew Tuttle rating the monks right here in the place to which I've decided to spend the rest of my life prattling on and on into this silly little microphone into your ear holes so we can rock on collectively in the manner in which we've become accustomed. Stay gold, motherfuckers. It's this guy graffiti. Yeah.